Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Last week, uh, J. Exodus Hooper joined us. Um, he's our affiliated humanist clergy. And we were considering how we can put the human into humanism and take out the ism. Um, now here's the situation, kind of. The pandemic has accelerated the already disastrous collapse of traditional liberal religious communities in American society. Conservative religions are beginning to see declining numbers as well. And people are voting with their feet, um, and they're calling it a bunch of different things, but um, uh, spiritual but not religious, SBNR is the, the new terminology on that one, NEO, NESE, nuns, uh, nothing in particular, a lot of people put on surveys these days. Secular, of course, uh, the religion of no religion is catching on as a catchphrase. Um, a lot of people are um, converting to religions that are outside the traditional Western monotheism, such as Buddhism and Taoism. And, uh, of course, then there's the whole idea that dogma is a thing from uh, the 20th century, uh, that nowadays we live in a post-Christian or post-religious world. So there's all kinds of ways uh, for that people are saying what they're saying, but the point is that uh, things are very uh, declining very, very quickly for most mainline Protestant religions. And the point that Jay and I were trying to make last week is that humanist communities can theft by dogmatic traditions for more and more people as these changes occur in American society if we can manage to put in the human and take out that ism, because again, we're kind of in a post-dogma kind of world. Uh, so creeds, dogmas, rules, and regulations are not exactly what people want to he be hearing about these days. Um, we are, however, a quickly secularizing nation, and that's, I think, where humanism can shine if, again, we can take that ism off of it. Uh, if we can stop saying what we're not, as I was mentioning last week, I know that that's part of the humanist explaining because people haven't heard of humanism. But again, saying what we're not is really not uh, what uh, most people want to hear. Um, we need to remember that phrase I keep using, humanism is about the world. It's not about humanism. And if we can begin to talk about what people hope to do in the world, then I think we have a chance at helping people in this quickly fragmenting nation, secularizing and fragmenting. Now, one thing we mean is uh, breaking down that barrier uh, that's developed between theism and uh, secularism. Um, again, maybe that's so 20th century, and, and uh, I begin more and more to see that as a kind of beside the point of what we're really talking about. Um, Einstein, uh, Albert Einstein put it, uh, his finger on, I think, a long time ago. He didn't support traditional religions, but he did believe in the religious impulse. And so he diagnosed this uh, feeling of separateness that he was seeing uh, in, in the world of the 1940s. And he said, a 
kind of optical delusion of business exists. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison, a, an optical delusion of consciousness, that separateness uh, that, that uh, tells us to follow our own desires instead of reaching out to others. An example of all of this, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA Lutherans, that we know very well here in Minnesota, it's the largest group of Lutherans in the nation, and they've been doing studies that indicate that by 2041, 2041, their denomination will no longer be financially viable. Studies show Sunday attendance in 2017 in ELCA Lutheran congregations was 899,000. That'll be down to 16,000 by 2041 is the prediction. Uh, the total membership of the ELCA was 3.4 million in 2017. The forecast for 2041 is 66,500. That is a catastrophic collapse that will occur in the next two decades if ELCA Lutherans don't figure something out. Now, Luther Seminary in St. Paul is working on the problem. They recently landed at $1.5 million that will be used to explore ways that church leaders can reshape and deepen congregational life, uh, members connecting to a congregation and then to one another and then to the larger world. And again, as this nation fragments into smaller and smaller secular subgroups, this connection, I think, becomes more and more urgent. And I find it uh, surprising and maybe even inspired that Luther Seminary is spending a million and a half bucks studying how to reconnect to this rapidly secularizing U.S. population at the same time that most liberal Christian congregations in response are reacting to these membership deficits by exploring how to be more theologically relevant. And that's the big catchphrase for most denominations right now, theologically relevant. And my suspicion is that the Lutherans have it right here. The Luther Seminary studying is it's being headed up by Professor Andrew Root, who just completed a three-volume study of religion in a secular America. In his work, Professor Root specifically rejects the usual tack taken by denominations that goes for that relevance, and he calls it a fool's game. And I agree with him. Religious organizations struggling to be relevant have already lost. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember the days when typewriter companies were struggling to remain relevant as personal began to take over. And the relevance that the typewriter companies built into their computers were actually word processing features, which computers already did better than typewriters could. It was a fool's game. And typewriters had to lose that game because PCs were already setting the rules of the game. And of course, typewriters did lose the game. Now they're antiques. Churches taking on the trappings of secular gathering, gatherings are in the, the exact same boat, I would say. Secular institutions already do things like volleyball leagues and book groups and lectures better than churches can. I think that Root has put his finger on this 
vast contradiction that's going to get a lot of congregations into trouble. Con consider the difference between something being relevant and something being resonant. That's really what I want to focus on today, the difference between relevant and resonant. Relevance is about the content, I would argue. Resonance is about a reaction and experience. And uh, we can find the words of St. Paul or the words of Jesus relevant, meaning that their words still have meaning to us today. But again, relevance is about content. But for religious traditions, as Professor Root clearly sees in his arguments, there's a certain amount of begging and pleading going on. Please, oh, please see what we've been preaching for 2,000 years as relevant. Well, that's exactly what the typewriter companies were saying when PCs took over the desktop. Instead, the Luther Seminary Project is pursuing that idea of resonance. And they're basing that idea and that work on the uh, theories of a German sociologist, Hartmut Rosa. And now Dr. Rosa, R-O-S-A, claims that we're experiencing what he terms a shrinking of the present. He sees that as a worldwide phenomenon. He was writing before the pandemic, and it's only getting worse. And what he sees as the accelerations are, it's no surprise to us, technological acceleration, more and more technology, social acceleration, America and the world is changing more and more faster and faster, and the acceleration in the rhythm of everyday life. What Rosa describes as this acceleration is that queasy feeling that a whole lot of us have been experiencing in recent years, and especially it's become even more toxic during this year of pandemic. Life has accelerated to the point that it's often difficult to even grasp the fact that we're living in what's really an eternal present of possibility. It often feels as if the only moments that we can grasp are the ones that are already behind us. Oh, I get it now. Well, it's too late. The past, as we all know, can't be changed. And so it becomes a very helpless feeling in this acceleration. Uh, no, I can't keep up with technology. I can't keep up with what's happening in American society. And I can't even keep up with my uh, basic chores uh, that need to be done every day. Um, the present just seems like it flows away like water. In the face of this, what congregations can offer, says Dr. Root, and I agree, is an experience of resonance. Resonance. Now, the Greeks way back distinguished between two sorts of time. Kronos with a C and Kairos with a K. Kronos is chronological time. That's where we get the word. It's clock time, and that's the thing that we feel is accelerating out of control. Now, unlike chronos, chromatic time, kairos is a moment of decision. It's that moment when you say, this is what I'm going to do. It's the critical opportune moment where action is possible and we make a decision. And now, from the very beginning, Christian congregations have been making 
that distinction between Kairos and Kairos. It enters Christian thinking all the way back. St. Paul was talking about it, and it appears they were talking about it even before uh, he started writing because there's some old hymns that exist even before the time of Paul. So this has been a very old con uh, con construction, but the problem is that Cairo can't be boring. Uh, it can't be offensive. And so how do we get at Kairos? That failure to create Kairos, I would say, is the disease that is driving people out of congregations today. You know, I mean, we have that uh, that saying, I resonate with that, right? I resonate with that. It's, it's a harmonic uh, resonance of some sort. And that word resonance does derive from Latin. It comes it's in Latin, it's the word for echo. And an echo is something that, you know, you resonate back, you have to wait a little bit, right? Uh, something happens, the echo comes back a little bit later. It's a duration of time. You have to wait for that bounce to come back. So resonance is a, has a time duration quality to it. Now, again, resonance, that feeling, is not about content so much as it's about reaction, emotion. It's about how we experience something. And there's no pleading going on. No one pushes anyone to hear resonance. You get it or you don't. We can put it out there, but you get it or you don't. It happens or it doesn't happen. All that a congregation can do is really make space in time for that resonance, that kairos, uh, that moment out of time. And that experience, that resonance, is about experiencing the now that Buddhists talk so much about. That's why people are becoming Buddhist, I think. That realization that the now is where action is actually possible. And we can get into it but it does take some focus, and then we feel that resonance. Uh, I suspect it's uh, very important to people uh, in the U.S. today, and I suspect that people are going to look for it somewhere else besides congregations. And that's where I think humanist groups can step in, experiencing that moment in the now and that resonance. Now, uh, Alison Wyeth mentioned this morning, the 10 commitments come from the American Human Association. Uh, you may have seen the poster online. We have it up around the building, but we haven't been in there for a year. The poster contains a list of things that most humanists take seriously. 10 commitments. Uh, yeah, sort of like the 10 commandments, but not. These include critical thinking, ethical development, peace and social justice, service and participation, empathy, humility, environmentalism, global awareness, responsibility, and altruism. Yeah, that's a lot of abstract words. But uh, actually, this 10 commit easy to read chart. Look it up online. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that we humanists have not done well uh, uh, over time. We haven't simplified our message very well. And I think the 10 commitments really do that pretty well because you can look at it you can see it, it all fits together in a nice circle. It makes our ideas simple and also accessible.
So our Religious Explorers program is beginning a curriculum today that looks at those commitments, as Allison mentioned, as a way for our younger folks to look at humanism and, and try to grasp what it is we're talking about with this word. Um, but, you know, I have suspicion the best way to sum up humanism is just to say, how can I help? How can I help? I think that's the center, and it's what critical thinking and ethical development and peace and social justice, service and participation, empathy, humility, environmentalism, global awareness, responsibility, and altruism, that's all it boils down to, I think. How can I help? How can I help the planet? How can I help my fellow human beings? And, you know, I suspect that everybody who's listening to me today resonates with those commitments. You're already committed to most, if not all of those, I have a suspicion. You already know that these commitments are central to living a life of meaning and purpose on the planet. You don't need convincing that these moral commitments are relevant. And that's the thing. You don't need to know they're relevant because you already resonate with them. That's the idea. And we need to work, I think, more and more on this idea of getting that message boiled down into something a little bit uh, simpler. Because I think a lot of people who are joining uh, the numbers, calling themselves secular in the United States today, that's exactly what they're looking for. Now, I'm sure you've heard that very common response when someone learns about humanism, and you may have even said it yourself when you heard about it, wow, that's what I've always believed, and I didn't know there was a name for it. Well, there is a name for it. Uh, and I wish it had a different name, like a lot of people do, but history has given us this one. So here it is. We, we kind of have that now. But much more than the name, humanism is about moral commitments to how we act in the world. Thomas Paine was good at phrasing things succinctly a long time ago. He said, my religion is to do good. That's a pretty simple phrase, and it's one that you can latch on to. Thanks, Thomas Paine. My religion is to do good. How can I help? And that's about getting into the moment, getting proximate, looking around, and acting responsibly. It's about resonating with those things that are around us. Living as a human without the ism means asking and answering a simple but profound question, how can I help? American children are going hungry today. How can I help? Racism and sexism permeate U.S. government and society. How can I help fix that? The city that we live in here in Minneapolis is split apart by racism and poverty. How can I help fix that? People who are different are denigrated and mistreated. How can I help fix that? How can I join with the traditionally marginalized and listen rather than pontificate and spout abstractions? How can I help save the planet, the living things, and the people? How can I live a life of meaning and purpose, a life of wisdom and kindness? How can I help? Sigmund Freud called what we humans 
often do to each other uh, to categorize each other, the narcissism of small differences, the, the narcissism of small differences. It's what we do often because we're, we're looking for identity. We say, oh, well, I'm this and I'm not that. And you're that and I'm, I'm not that. And, you know, that's the narcissism of small differences. And really, we need to work to make that go away. And back to Albert Einstein again, I think he put his finger on that issue and that quote I mentioned earlier. That's the entirety of the religious project, I think, for any denomination, any religion. How can we get past the selfish delusions that society foists upon us and get into that place of connection outside of ourselves where we can ask, how can I help? How can I have meaning and purpose in this world? Uh, another American author, George Saunders, phrases it this way, and I love this, this the way he says it. Kindness is the only non-delusional response to the human condition. George Saunders is a novelist. Kindness is the only non-delusional response to the human condition. And Notice there that Einstein and Saunders are both using that word delusion. We become humanists because we don't want to live in delusion. We search for answers that are real, actual, true answers. And I, for one, want to join J. Exodus Hooper in what he calls the theology of realness. That's how we get beyond that narcissism of small differences, uh, the theology of realness. That's a realness in which mind, heart, and body all come together all the time. We bring our whole selves into those conversations. Jay calls us to serve realness, as he says it, and to embrace unconditional diversity, unconditional diversity. And I think that pretty well sums up all 10 of those humanist commitments too. That's why I work for a future on the other side of all of the isms that we live with uh, in, our, in our split world and our fragmented nation, on the other side of those isms. There is something else out there if we are bold enough to embrace that. The vision of the Unitarian ministers who created congregational humanism was to create church homes for people who could not in good conscience have other church homes. All the benefits of a congregation without that snake oil and that dogma, they wanted resonance instead. And though American society has changed a whole lot in that hundred plus years since First Unitarian Society people undertook the humanist experiment, we are changing and adapting to meet the needs of a changing nation and a changing world. The numbers don't lie. More and more people agree with us, but sadly, most of them have never heard of us. And that's what projects such as the Ten Commitments are designed to fix. The members of First Unitarian Society and your ministers and the young leaders that we are nurturing today, we are all dedicated to the common purpose of creating a home for those who cannot in good conscience find a resonant home elsewhere, to create resonance in this mad and rushing acceleration of clock time that all of us are experiencing now. I believe that is a needed and a noble task. 
And further, I believe that we are the people who can do that. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.